Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome back to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. Last week, we started talking about our list of 49 tips for closing arguments. We ended with number 25. Let's start back off with the next tip. Okay, 26, identify outside the box arguments. And these are really identifying what are, in essence, jury nullification arguments. Once you've gone through the law, here's some things we heard that have nothing to do with what the law is, about how you're supposed to consider your decision in this case, and all this other stuff has nothing to do with the law of how you're supposed to decide this case. So 27, arguing more likely than not. And here's how I've used that in the past. We talked earlier about the elements of your case set forth in the verdict director. Number one, defendant drove too fast for conditions. Number two, defendant was negligent. Number three, that negligence caused or contributed to cause damage to the plaintiff. And what I do when going through the elements in close, I will add and remind the jury that the standard is more likely than not. More likely than not was the defendant driving too fast for conditions. More likely than not was that conduct unreasonable. More likely than not did that conduct cause the plaintiff's damages. It's a way to highlight and remind the jury that each of the elements that they need to find are not beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Or it's you just, know for sure it happened. Right. Right. 28, highlighting your best evidence. Hopefully you have some best evidence, otherwise you're in trouble. But I think, you know, if you've done focus groups or just from talking to other lawyers about our cases like we do or our families or friends, they're usually in a case, hopefully you can identify some can't get over it facts. And you want to highlight the things you think the jury just isn't going to be able to move past and they're going to focus on. And if you have good physical evidence, a picture speaks a thousand words. So make sure to remind them and get them to focus on what you think is the best thing for your case. There was a case one of the lawyers in our office tried, and it had to do with a vehicle driving too fast for conditions. It was fog. And this uh, driver was probably going 50, 55 miles an hour on a highway. Other cars were stopped, pulled over to the shoulder and they ran into the back of our client's daughter's vehicle and she was killed instantly. I worked that case up, but Johnny and another attorney who used to be here ended up trying it because I had a case with you. And they were arguing about his speed and stood up and showed the picture of the car that got hit. And he goes, they're arguing about how fast he was driving. You know how fast he was driving? And he blew up the picture of the car that got struck that fast. Yeah, I mean, it was demolished, the back of the car. And that was a fact that they just couldn't get over. I mean, we couldn't get over it. The jury couldn't get over it. And it was the best evidence on the most critical issue in the case. And it was a single photograph. And the other side had accident reconstruction experts and all of this stuff. And it just completely threw that aside. And It ended liability. Yeah. As they say, facts are a stubborn thing. So 29. How do you ask for an amount, Tim? I'll do it different ways. The first thing I would say is you need to make sure that you feel confident and credible and sincere in the amount that you're asking for. Because if you feel a little uncomfortable, like it's too much or not the right number, the jury's going to be able to tell that you don't feel comfortable with the number two. So sometimes I'll ask for a specific amount. Sometimes I'll ask for a range. Sometimes I'll break it down by category, depending on if there's different line items. A lot of times what I end up doing is I suggest a range, but I do it in this way. Ladies and gentlemen, based on the evidence that I've gone through about the effect this had on my client's life or, you know, their loss of their family member, I can tell you this. 
X amount, $5 million isn't close, and three times that isn't too much, but we'll leave it for you to decide. It really depends on the case, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good way to do it. And I tell you, I've had cases where one case in particular, I won't go into the details, it was an auto accident case many, many years ago as a young lawyer. The jury was out for about 15 minutes and I had asked them for 175. They came back with 175 and I'll never forget one of the jurors came (laughs) over to me. He was an older guy and kind of put his arm on my shoulder and said, you know, Mr. Simon, you did a nice job, but some of us didn't think he asked for enough money. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I was like- I hope like, your client was yeah, standing uh, right next You know what? You. I felt terrible about that. So anyway- That leads to number 30. Can you ask for too much? Right. And I think you can ask for too much, but I think it all depends on how you ask. Giving the jury a range and making sure you explain depends on the injury too. And the outrage of the conduct involved. If it's outrageous conduct, I'm less concerned about whether asking for too much affects my ability to win on liability. But focus group your case to figure out and present different scenarios like we did in that opioid case where we figured out we couldn't ask for too much. We asked for bigger and bigger amounts in the focus groups we did. And it wasn't affecting the percentage of times we won or the comparative fault split. And we were on average, when we asked for more, we were consistently getting about a third of what we asked for. And that is what happened at trial. We do a ton of focus groups. We do a lot of them online. And the benefit of doing them online is you can change one variable, one item. And we've done this in the past. We'll run the same set of facts in an online focus group and just change the amount. And we'll change the amount significantly. One amount will be five, six times more than the other. And really what we're looking at is how does that affect other decisions in the case, the decisions on liability. In my experience, based on all the work that I've done and the cases that I've handled, the focus groups, I think that avoiding extreme situations where you ask for ridiculous amounts of money, I have found that there's really very little effect on the liability issues, depending on what the amount is. I mean, that's what I found. And so I would say, can you ask for too much? Yes, but not really is how I would answer that. Maybe sometimes, but I think usually not. Yeah. So, all right, 31, fill out the verdict form with the jurors. And this is just simple. Just make sure you're helping to explain to them how they fill it out appropriately and correctly. Number 32, describing expert witnesses. Okay, so say for instance, an injury case where you have an expert versus a treating doctor. Overwhelmingly, people are going to believe the treating doctor more than they are a hired expert. The person's paid to come in and testify. So experts are a last resort, literally. If you have to prove your case with your expert that you're paying money to, I think you got some problems. If that's the only person that you have good evidence of for why you should win, because jurors, they understand the reality of the situation. You're literally paying someone to come in and say the things you need to say to win or paying someone to come in and say the things you need to say to say the plaintiff should lose. What I've done, I had a case where I was relying on several cases. I've done this more than once where I was relying on the treating doctor to give causation testimony in a case. And the other side hired an IME doctor, which the defense does a lot of times. And sometimes we do, but they hired somebody who spent most of his time just flying around testifying against plaintiffs in cases. Yeah. And what I did in close was I said the difference between these doctors is Dr. Smith, who testified for us, gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror, straightens his tie and says, what the operating room am I going today? And the other, their expert gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror and says, what courtroom am I going to be testifying today? <laughs> yeah. Something that's memorable to point it out. I mean, I've heard other lawyers, I've not used this term. Jukebox. Jukebox witness. I have. Have you used that? It's the expert that you put your quarter in and you pick what song that's going to play. 
Number 33, not asking for sympathy. How do you usually address that? That's something that you got to really hit it hard in vor dire. You need to do that so the defense doesn't take advantage of that and get all the uh, favorable jurors off. Yeah. I mean, we're all sympathetic. We all have hearts. Something bad happens to somebody and not through their fault. We all feel bad about it. That's just human nature. And what I try to do is compare it to empathy, sympathy versus empathy, and let the jurors know. We're not asking for sympathy here. My clients had all the sympathy that they need and want. What they're asking for is a fair and just judgment. And then that doesn't mean you can't empathize with them. That doesn't mean you you have to have empathy in order to decide damages. Right. You need to put yourself in their shoes and look at what they went through in order to decide full and fair damages in the case. And then reinforce it in closing argument. As we told you in Wadir, folks, my client's not asking for sympathy. The time for sympathy is gone. This is the time for justice. Yeah. And what about, Tim, number 34? Turning around, it's all about the money. I kind of address this head on. If that kind of suggestion is made, or I think it's going to be made, focusing on, look, we didn't choose this system of compensation. That's the only thing we can sue for. They want to try to say, oh, now we see this is all about the money for the plaintiff's lawyer or the plaintiff just trying to get money and saying, you know who else it's all about the money for? Them. It's all about the money for them too. And they want less money because it's better for them to not have to pay for what they did. If that argument is brought up that it's all about the money, it's a money grab, it's a lottery, whatever it is, and you've got a client who's seriously injured, paralyzed in a wheelchair, quadriplegic. Yeah, I don't hear uh, that argument when it's a really bad case. When it's a really bad case, you don't hear that. It's when I guess the damages are being contested. But I mean, if they're saying it's a lottery, you say, you know, okay, what's the price of a ticket? Price of a ticket is climbing into a wheelchair and never walking again for the rest of your life, but it's brought in subtly. There's never a direct attack in a case where the damages are horrendous or catastrophic. I think most defense attorneys don't do that anymore. I have never directly heard, oh, now we know why we're all here. They're trying to get a bunch of money. I think courts have recognized you can't call it like a lottery system. I have motions in limine about it. But another way to do it, if you have the right evidence, is say, you know, why did we end up here and this happened to my client? Because for them, it was all about the money. It was about profits over safety, profits over people, and turn it on. Mm -hmm. So number 35, stress the significance of the case. A lot of times we will have discovered documents in a particular company, whether it's a car company or bus company, school bus company, that it's the first time to our knowledge that it's been disclosed in discovery. It's the first time that they've been compelled to produce it. And, you know, I don't hesitate to tell the jurors that. I tell them in opening, I tell them in close that. You've seen documents in this case. You've seen evidence and documents and testimony. You've heard testimony in this case that is the first time anybody outside of that company has heard it or seen it. And now it's time for a reckoning. Right. What it does is it just really helps stress the importance of the case and the significance of the case. Number 36, what will be done with the money? This is so important. One of the things that anybody is going to want to know is what's going to happen to the money. What good is it going to do? What good is it going to do? And I think you need to address that head on. For instance, if you have a minor or you have a disabled client, you know, if that money is going to go into a trust, I think the jury needs to know that. And that's, you know, 37 is money put in trust for children, which is just an example of what you're talking about, John. I think two things. You need to show the jury the good that the money will do. And then in addition to that, you need to show the jury that the money will be handled responsibly. And protect it. If you have a disabled person or a child, people need to know that money is going to be there for that child. Someone else can't take it from them. It's going to be protected. Right. So, and that's 36. What will be done with the money? You need to show that it will be put to a good use. Number 37, that the money will be protected and used responsibly. 
Number 38, what do you do when you hear it's too much money for one person? And I don't hear this directly said either, but I think it's a theme that's kind of hinted at. And I think similar to what we said in the previous ones is you have to be giving a reason for the jury to believe that it will be handled responsibly. And you really need to put the focus on that is not the law that you are supposed to consider. Pull back out the instruction, emphasize the purpose of the law, and it is to compensate for what was taken. Not to think about how, you know, that's more money than a lot of people in this courtroom may ever see. It's to balance what was taken. Yeah, and I've done this many times in, for instance, a death case. Address it head on. The person can't be brought back. I mean, we can't undo this. And I've started closing arguments, at least the damage portion, acknowledging that wouldn't it be nice if we had a system where we could undo this and that person would be here today. You know, my client, if his wife was alive, if we could undo it, if we could go back in time, he'd take her by the hand and they'd both happily leave her and never talk to you or see you again. And you think if my client had a billion dollars, they wouldn't turn over every penny of that for their spouse yes, or their right. child to walk through that door, take them by the hand and walk out of here. That's how you figure out how you balance the scales. And that deals with arguments to oppose the amount of the money. It's too much money. So number 39, expose non-legal damage arguments. And that's kind of what you were just talking about, Tim. In other words, the money won't bring them back, value of what was taken. Get back to the instructions. You know, what the law requires. The law requires you to justly compensate, to replace, to put a value on what was taken. Number 40, the real reason we are here. And I think what we mean by that is basically saying, look, this is what these people think of you. They think you're not going to follow the law. You're not going to come to the what even they know is a more just and righteous result because my client's old or because my client is an immigrant or has a felony conviction. And so they're willing to bet that that's how you're going to think about the case instead of thinking about it the way you're supposed to. That's what they think of you and kind of, you know, almost shame the other side. Number 41, maintain your credibility at all times. Be the best version of yourself. You got to believe in what you're saying. Don't take crazy, unreasonable positions. Your credibility is all you have. If you lose your credibility, you lose your case. You lose your credibility over one thing. You lose it over everything. You have to be mindful of it the whole time. And I think it's more harsh on plaintiff's attorneys than defense attorneys. I really do. Yeah, I do. I think defense attorneys, for whatever reason, can get by with some credibility issues and it doesn't harm them or hurt them. Not so with plaintiffs. If you're representing a plaintiff in a case, it, this goes both ways. Defense, plaintiff, all of us. We should be credible. If you don't believe something, guess what? Don't say it. If you don't think something's true, don't argue it. If you don't believe in the argument, don't make it, okay? You're trying to persuade a group of people of your client's position. If you're not credible, if they even sense that you're not 100% credible, you're going to have toast. a heck of a job. Yeah. You're going to be in trouble. 42, importance of defendant's conduct. If you have some egregious conduct that might upset somebody, you really need to put the focus of the defendant's conduct front and center. And I think it works the other way. If there's some conduct of the plaintiff who's asking for money that the jury isn't going to want to really give them money from the defense side, I would focus on what the plaintiff did. And now here they are asking for money. Yep. Cuts both ways. Number 43, use some damage examples from the juror's backgrounds. You know, you'll learn some things about the juror's background during voir dire from the information that you get. And again, you're not trying to put the jurors in the shoes of the plaintiff. You can't do that. But you want to try to give examples, real world examples that you think those on the jury can relate to. So let me give you an example. I tried a case many years ago and I represented a speech therapist 
PhD speech therapist who spent her life or career working with small children with speech issues. And she'd been doing that for years. Well, she got hit in a low impact rear end accident, hit her chin on the steering wheel, ended up having TMJ joint problems, ended up having a surgery and things just didn't go well. And she wasn't able to work as a speech therapist. Very wonderful, wonderful lady, nice client. What the defendant did is they hired a vocational rehabilitation expert, and this person came in and talked about how she was so qualified, actually overly qualified for the speech therapy that she was doing, and that with her PhD and her background, she could get several jobs making two and three times more than what she was doing. And really, that was their theory. We had a claim in the case. I don't know if it was a wage loss claim, but she certainly couldn't do the job that she was trying to do. So what I did in that case in Vordire It started in Vordire, and I picked a couple of the jurors. I don't remember what their backgrounds were specifically, but they had sort of unique jobs. Yeah. And I asked them, when did you- they worked their life to be able to do that job. Yes. And how did you get into that? And why did you choose that? Were there other things you could have done? And I even asked, is there anything you would rather be doing than what you're doing now? And so finally- you could do a different job tomorrow and make a little bit more money, would you? Or do you love what you do? Yeah. And so the other thing too was finally when the voc rehab expert got on the stand- I asked him the same thing. I said, so what do you do? You help people get back to the workforce? And how long have you been doing that? Do you enjoy your work? Do you love it? Is there anything you would rather be doing? And he realized halfway through where I was going. He just just smiled and was honest and said, no, sir, this is what I chose. This is what I'd want to do. So again, use examples from the juror's background or the witnesses, some of the witnesses' backgrounds to make it personal, bring it home. Number 44, challenge your opponent. Yeah, focus on your best fact or best facts. Focus on the worst, most difficult or impossible to explain thing by the other side, and then challenge them again to try to shift their focus to that thing that they don't want to talk about. Okay. uh, Number 45, embrace your biggest problem. If you're trying to hide from some fact or some situation in your case, like your client has a felony, it's a death case, but the person who died was already 85 years old, your client's not likable. If you're trying to avoid something, the jury is going to be able to tell you're trying to avoid it, and then they might think it's more important than you want them to think. I think you got to just be honest and credible and say, look, we know this, we acknowledge this, and we're here because they decided to try this case because they think you're not going to be able to get over that, and we have more confidence in you than that. 46, leave the jurors with something to think about, showing that that conduct hasn't changed. What they were doing is, is they're still doing it. There have been no policy or procedure changes. The case we were just talking about earlier with an automotive product case where they didn't do the test they were supposed to do. They didn't do their own internal test. There's still 247,000 vehicles out there with this defect out on the roads. Let the jurors know that what we showed you and told you is still going on out there. Unless you do something, unless you come up with the right verdict for the right reason, that conduct's going to continue. Number 47, and this is more of an idea, think about what to cover in rebuttal. And, you know, maybe you have something you want to save for rebuttal. You know, I might have a couple bullet points of something I think I'm going to bring up in rebuttal. But usually what I do, John, is I don't have anything written for rebuttal. Oftentimes, I sit and carefully listen to what the other side is saying and then get up and express my righteous indignation over the things I think they said that are the most ridiculous. I kind of do the same thing with this difference. I think it's pretty easy to anticipate what you're going to hear. So even though I don't write something out a lot of times, 
I know what they're going to get up and say, and I've already addressed it pretty much in the first half. A lot of times I'll start with, before I hit the specifics, you know, almost everything you just heard and then hold up the jury instructions is to get you to not follow these. For example, they said this and this and this, and it's all to tell you not to follow the instructions you took an oath to follow. Number 48, your conclusion. And how do you usually do that? What I like to do is I call it handing off the case to the jurors, empowering them with the responsibility of the case, telling them something like, look, I've been working on this case for two years or three years. We've done our best. I hope you think we did that. We tried to bring you everything that you needed to make the right decision in the case. I hope you agree that we did that. In a matter of a minute or two minutes, my job is done. Yours just begins. And the responsibility from this case, and even open your hands, you know, this case is now in your hands. I just sign off by saying, we hope and pray you do the right thing. And that's it. Yeah. And number 49, once you've done your job and you've handed it off, all you can do is trust the jury. I'm sure we all have examples of past cases where we don't think they got it right. But once you've handed it off to them, you just have to trust them. So those are our 49 tips. We hope you've gotten something out of them or enjoyed them. Again, this is John Simon. Tim Cronin. Thank you for uh, joining us for another episode of The Jury Is Out. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.